This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Age of Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. All right. So before we get going, I do not have any new Patreon subscribers. If you would like to join, go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. If you'd like to sign up, we drop three episodes a month on there. You can check out the tiers, see what you like. You know, if that's if that's what you're into and you like the podcast, I think we have about 75 extra episodes on there right now. So check it out if you want. I will also be stating sources at the end of this episode because there are a shitload of them. I only state sources for very specific information that I gather. I'm not going to sit here and state sources for... You know, just the same half paragraph that's printed in a hundred places. That's a little bit redundant. I got reviews coming at the end of this, along with a promo from one of my friend's podcasts. Other than that, my name is Justin, this is Mysterious Circumstances, and you're listening to The Death of Jimi Hendrix Part 2. So we're going to get this part two going with, let's talk about how shady as fuck Monica Daneman is with her various stories always changing and the fact that before she was supposed to go in front of the court and tell the truth about what happened to Jimi Hendrix, she decided to take her own life or she was taken out. Either way you look at it, kind of weird. But we are going to cover her a little bit more. First, we're going to talk about Jimi Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey. So there's a reason that he is a catalyst for a lot of the theories that Jimi Hendrix was murdered. Because Mike Jeffrey is a shady fucking dude who has a really, really shady past. So let's get into him for a minute. Before becoming Jimi Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey was a covert op for British intelligence. And I wish I could make this shit up, but I totally can't. According to one of his original clients, Eric Burden, who you heard me mention in part one, he was with the Animals originally, and he went on to form the band War. Mike Jeffrey used to brag to him about his, you know, 007 type shit that he would do during the Cold War. He would stage assassinations in Greece, torturing agents, blowing up Russian and Egyptian bases in the Suez. Now, Eric Burden just totally blew all this stuff off because he's like, ah, dude's just drunk talking shit. Until early one morning, 
Mike Jeffrey invited him out to the London Harbor, where the U.S. 7th Fleet was trolling for some lost nukes. When Eric Burden showed up, Mike Jeffrey was not there. All of a sudden, Mike Jeffrey pops up out of the water in full scuba gear, and he's holding a little black box. And he pointed out to the Armada, right? And he took that little black box and he flipped a switch on it. All of a sudden, all these little underwater explosions went off. And Eric Burden was like, holy shit, man, this guy, this guy wasn't even screwing around. Like, what the hell kind of shit was he into? He also went on to describe how Mike Jeffrey burnt down his club marimba for the insurance money. And he pretty much stole the animals' money as well, the band, the animals. Stole their money. That's part of the reason they broke up. Like, Mike Jeffrey was stealing all their shit and still owed them money, you know, up until the time when Mike Jeffrey died. And we'll get to that as well, because that's weird. But in the fall of 1966, uh, the bassist for the animals was Chas Chandler. Uh, He's the one who discovered Jimi Hendrix in New York, and he flew him to London and introduced him to Mike Jeffrey. Now, the two of them co-managed Jimi Hendrix and helped him, you know, bring together the Jimi Hendrix experience, helped him form the band. Now, several years later, Chaz Chandler and Jimi Hendrix kind of drifted apart because they had a lot of creative differences. And Chandler went on to say, The window of opportunity was there for Jeffrey to scoop it all up. I knew that something dodgy was going to happen, but I never dreamt it would lead to Jimi's death. And then Noel Redding, in his memoir, he was also a bassist for the Jimi Hendrix experience. He described Mike Jeffrey's fondness for guns, how he would watch him throw knives all the time, how he had electronic bugging devices everywhere, and when they were on the road, he would implant spies to basically report back to him what was going on with the band and all this other crazy shit, right? Now, the thing about Mike Jeffrey is he got into music after getting out of the military for the money, and he toured Jimi Hendrix and his band relentlessly, like fucking nonstop, because this dude didn't give a shit about Jimi. He cared about money, and that's all. Jimi Hendrix was earning $100,000 a gig, but he was so exhausted from touring and you know late nights, partying, all this shit, that he was pretty much broke. Like, Mike Jeffrey was a multimillionaire, and he had all these offshore bank accounts going, all right? They were all numbered bank accounts. And one of the kickers is Mike Jeffrey would put all his financial shit, in case of audits or any anybody questioning his shit, he kept all of his financial records in Russian. Now, when I say this dude was covert or special ops and shit, it was MI6 type shit. The dude fluently spoke, from what I understand, I read in one article, three different languages fluently. The one that is always prevalent, that his dad even talks about, is that Mike Jeffrey fluently could speak Russian, he could write Russian, and all that shit. So he kept all his financial records in Russian so that nobody else could read what he was doing with his money, and in case he got audited, nobody could decipher the shit, really. Now, like I had mentioned... Jeffrey got into the music industry to make money, and this is what made him overwork Hendrix. He would claim 40% of all Hendrix's earnings, and he left Hendrix and the rest of his bandmates with just enough money to get by. 
And like I said, he did this to the other bands that he had managed as well. Hilton Valentine, who was the lead guitarist for The Animals, he said that in a Reels documentary that Mike Jeffrey owed him 45,000 pounds at the time, which would amount to over a million dollars today. Valentine never got any of that fucking money, obviously. And because Jeffrey was so entwined with working Hendrix, he decided to build his own recording studio, and uh, it was something that Hendrix wanted as well. So he took out loans, supposedly from mobsters, to build Electric Lady Studios. But Mike Jeffrey had Hendrix tour America for four months straight without a break to help pay for the studio. Hendrix also had a bunch of new people around all the time, which meant they would be in the studio and Hendrix is spending less time recording music and he's spending more time hanging out with his new friends. Um, from everything that I've read and heard from his biographers, personal friends of his, all that stuff, Jimi Hendrix had one of those personalities where he could not say no to people. And he was almost naive in a sense. And I don't mean naive in a bad way, obviously, but he was just a good-hearted good guy and he just didn't say no to people so he had all these hanger-ons you know all these people hanging around so when he would go into the studio he had all these new people just kind of leeching off of him and there's no music really getting made so the recording sessions are getting longer they're getting way more expensive and Jimi hendrix's music was kind of turning you know in 69 and 70 you know this is about time that the band of gypsies came together the the experience had disbanded and Jimi hendrix is burnt out on touring well when the experience broke up mike jeffrey he didn't think that jimmy's new style of music was going to be profitable he didn't think it was going to be able to make him money so he kept pressuring jimmy to get the experience back together now around this time Jimi Hendrix is busted for heroin possession in Toronto, Canada, like right on the border. And Hendrix and honestly, lots of other people suspected that Jeffrey had actually set this up, had planted the heroin on him uh, to get him caught because Mike Jeffrey was desperate and he thought that he was going to lose like his cash cow and that he had set all this up and planted this shit on him so that Jimmy would be forced to keep the experience together so that he could pay for his legal expenses and it would prove that he would need Mike Jeffrey, which is shady as shit. And even Jimi Hendrix himself was like, he, he didn't do heroin, you know what I mean? And there's like a lot of stories of him doing heroin, but all his close personal friends were like, no, really wasn't into that shit. So, you know, you have a lot of contradicting stories on that particular drug. Take it as you will. So Hendrix is exhausted, and he's refusing to go on tour because he had an argument with Mike Jeffrey over, um, like I said, the band members. You know, Hendrix wanted to kind of evolve into the band of Gypsies. Mike Jeffrey didn't see that band as being able to make that much fucking money. So he's like, no, you need to get the experience back together because they're marketable. We can sell records. There's more songs that are radio friendly, you know, this, that, and the other. And Hendrix just wasn't fucking having it, so he refused to go on tour. So this is where, supposedly, Mike Jeffrey got some of his mafia friends, because he was tied to the mafia. Like, there are plenty, 
plenty of stories about him being tied to this shit. And supposedly Jeffrey had enlisted the mafia to kidnap Hendrix. Basically, his whole thing would have been that, uh, you know, he was going to save him from being kidnapped and Hendrix was going to be so appreciative. Like, okay, man, I need you around. I need your connections. I'm not going to fucking fire you. Well, kind of, you know, didn't really work out that way. So there are two stories to the kidnapping. And it is true, like, Jimi Hendrix really did legitimately disappear for a few days in September, I believe, of 69. And um, Jimi Hendrix told this story to his friends and shit. And this is the one that he tells. Now, he says that he was kidnapped at gunpoint and held hostage for a few days. And then he was rescued in this big dramatic shootout. And Mike Jeffrey was the guy who just happened to show up and save him. He happened to know where he was and the people that took him, so he's the guy who saved him. And Hendrix immediately was like, you know, this is kind of fucking weird, man. You're just kind of everywhere. He didn't trust him. He hadn't trusted him for a minute, but now he really didn't trust him, all right? So that's the first story about the kidnapping. And and really, there's not too many other details that are involved in this version of the story. And this is like the shorthand version that Hendrix would tell his closest friends. The second version of this story is way more detailed. And it involves a fucking straight-up mobster who turned into a cocaine trafficker who was basically the American person in charge of the Medellin drug cartel through the mid-1970s and the early 1980s. And this shit is crazy, all right? So John Riccobono, I hope I pronounced his last name right, uh, it was later changed to John Roberts. This dude, like I said, was straight up. His memoir is called American Desperado. It was authored by Evan Wright. And even Evan Wright when he was told this story by John Roberts, he straight up said he didn't even believe it. He's like, there's no fucking way, man. So the further that he dug into this shit, he discovered that there's a good chance it might have been true. John Roberts says that it was in New York and he owned a club called Salvation. And in an excerpt from this book, American Desperado, John Roberts wrote, I got involved in Jimmy's so-called kidnapping after he was grabbed by some guys out of salvation. At the time, Jimmy had been engulfed by a severe heroin addiction. On this occasion, he visited salvation in an attempt to score. He goes on to say, Two Italian kids at our club, not mafia, but wise guy wannabes, saw Jimmy in there looking for dope and decided, Hey, that's Jimi Hendrix. Let's grab him and see what we can get. Apparently, they lured him to a house outside the city with the promise of getting him some heroin and hoped to hold him for ransom. Roberts had been notified of the abduction by Salvation's manager. He said, It took me and my mafia partner, Andy Benfante, two or three phone calls to get the names of the kids who were holding Jimmy. We reached out to these kids and made it clear, You let Jimmy go or you are dead. Do not harm a hair of his afro. Now, we do have to also mention, like I said, John Roberts, also known as John Riccobono, he was a serious fucking mobster. Like, his father was a member, from what I understand, his uncle, his cousins were all members of La Costa Nostra, so I mean, he was fucking legit. And 
He says in the book, they let Jimmy go. The whole thing lasted maybe two days. Jimmy was so stoned he probably didn't even know he was ever kidnapped. Andy and I waited a week or so and went after these kids. We gave them a beating they would never forget. Like I had mentioned, there's a lot of different stories on Jimmy being on heroin, so you got to take these stories with a grain of salt, all right? Because none of us were there. We don't know what happened. John Roberts has since passed away, so, you know, I can't exactly email him and ask him and shit. But anyway, like I said, what we do know is that he did disappear for a few days in September of 1969, and he told his friends, like Jimi Hendrix told his friends the Mike Jeffrey story about Mike Jeffrey coming in and saving him and this, you know, dramatic shootout or whatever the fuck happened and that Jimmy didn't know how he knew where he was. And this goes along with the murder theory as well. In 1975, Monica Daneman claimed in an interview that Hendrix had been murdered by mobsters. She said, I do believe that he got poisoned, that he actually got murdered. Now, I will say this. She told this to a biographer by the name of Caesar Glebeek. Now, I will say, um, as for Bob Levine, who is going to come up here in a little bit, okay, Bob Levine was one of the managers for Jimi Hendrix in the U.S. Uh, he has been seriously misquoted by Caesar Glebeek. So, where you want to put your stock in her quote, supposedly to him, that's on you, but Bob Levine actually was super fucking mad because Caesar Glebeek had put in one of his books about Jimi Hendrix some shit that Bob Levine had said that he didn't actually say, or he had taken completely out of context and kind of twisted around. So, take that as you will. But she also supposedly went on to say, There's something really bad behind the whole thing. And there's quite a powerful group behind all that. I think it is the Mafia. So, following the kidnapping incident, Hendrix would go on to tour a shitload in the months before his death. He was drained, he was depressed, he was suffering from chronic lack of sleep, he was physically and emotionally exhausted. And by this time, he was terrified of Mike Jeffrey. He was in secret negotiations with Miles Davis's manager, a guy named Alan Douglas. Now, Mike Jeffrey heard that Alan Douglas was talking with Jimmy about, you know, the whole new management thing. Because Jimmy died in September. I believe his contract came up at the end of December of 1970. So his contract with Mike Jeffrey was almost up. So he heard from one of his little, you know, informants that he had implanted around Jimmy that um, he was uh, planning on leaving and joining Alan Douglas, having Alan Douglas as a manager, and he accused Douglas of trying to steal his artist. So after the Isle of Wight performance, Jimmy goes back to London, and he's kind of laying low, he's chilling out, he's trying to avoid Mike Jeffrey, um, who had actually followed him there, and he was also finalizing the new management deal with Alan Douglas. Now, on the morning of September 17th, Alan Douglas phoned Hendrix's uh, lawyers in New York, informing them that he would be relieving Jeffrey of his management duties. So that would mean that Mike Jeffrey would lose his biggest earner, and that also meant that Alan Douglas would be taking over the books. 
which means Alan Douglas would more than likely discover all the embezzlement shit that was going on, all the fraud, all the money that Mike Jeffrey was stealing from Jimi Hendrix, and all this mismanagement over the years. But because Jimi Hendrix died before his contract came up, Mike Jeffrey got a fucking fortune. Uh, His management contract was renewed by default. And he got all these profits from all the record sales after Jimmy died. And he collected supposedly a $2 million insurance policy, which he had taken out on Jimi Hendrix uh, not long before he died. Now, that little fact about the insurance policy was only according to a guy named Tappy Wright, who we're going to get to here in a second. Now, another guy by the name of Norman, uh, who's a biographer, he he argues that doesn't really hold water that much because he was still going to be connected to that manager for some time after the actual management contract ended. He said Jeffrey was set to continue to make significant money from Hendrix's albums, his advances, his revenues, you know, way up into the 70s, and never received a penny from the insurance claim because according to Jimi Hendrix's U.S. manager, Bob Levine, this insurance policy was actually taken out by his record company, which was Warner Brothers. It wasn't taken out by Mike Jeffrey. So you have all this shit going on, a lot of money, a lot of different people. I'm glad you guys are keeping up with me, though. Now, here's another crazy part of the whole Mike Jeffrey shit. Michael Jeffrey reportedly died in a crazy-ass plane crash over France in March of 1973. His remains were never found. Now, Eric Burden, Noel Redding, and lots of other people believe that he checked his luggage onto the plane, but during the boarding process kind of slipped out. Now, Mike Jeffrey was due in London the very next week to defend himself in several huge lawsuits relating to his embezzlement, money laundering, and fraud involving the Jimi Hendrix experience. Legitimately, this guy dies in a crazy plane crash where nobody was found in 1973, the week before he is set to be in court because he's being sued by 10 different fucking people because of the fact he was stealing all this fucking money from Jimi Hendrix and the other band members and, you know, the whole money laundering and fraud and shit. Crazy, huh? Now, here's the part that kind of contradicts itself. Eight years after he was buried, Mike Jeffrey's body was exhumed from Hither Green Cemetery. The exhumation took place on April 16th, 1981 by Home Office License. The remains were later cremated at Hither Park without ceremony at the request of Mike Jeffrey's father, Frank. Now, let me ask you something. If nobody was ever found, then why are they so concerned with exhuming Mike Jeffrey's body? So, could it be possible that Mike Jeffrey, you know, had never been on that plane that crashed? Yeah, it's absolutely possible. If there's anybody that could do it, I believe it would be Mike Jeffrey because of his fucking background. Now, if he's got all this fucking money that he had been laundering, he had numbered fucking offshore bank accounts. So, all he has to do is 
get to that money and he's going to be totally fine because a guy like Mike Jeffrey is perfectly capable of starting a new life with a new name, you know, under a total different identity. Like the guy literally was a fucking spy. All right, so moving forward in time on the Jimi Hendrix was murdered by Mike Jeffrey theory. We're going to go to 1992. Dr. John Bannister, who was the surgeon who dealt with Hendrix at the hospital, he said he was convinced the star had drowned in red wine despite having very little alcohol in his bloodstream. He said, I recall vividly the large amounts of red wine that oozed from his stomach and his lungs, and in my opinion, there was no question that Jimi Hendrix had drowned, if not at home, then on the way to the hospital. Dr. Bannister testified, Jimi Hendrix had been dead for some time. Red wine was coming out of his nose and out of his mouth. It was horrific. And then he described how he tried to clear his windpipe with an 18-inch metal sucker, but finally gave up because there was so much liquid in his windpipe and his lungs and shit, which is crazy. He said, someone apparently poured red wine down Jimmy's throat to intentionally cause asphyxiation after first causing barbiturate intoxication. Without the ability to cough, he was easily drowned. And then the fact that there was almost no alcohol found in Hendrix's blood, and his friends stated that he didn't even drink red wine. Now, going back on the Mike Jeffrey thing, waterboarding and forced ingestion were commonly used by MI6 and other intelligence agents during the Cold War. It was a preferred interrogation or assassination technique since it left no marks on the body. Pretty wild shit, right? We do have one explanation for the presence of all the red wine, and this came from Sharon Lawrence who wrote a 2005 book called Jimi Hendrix, The Man, The Magic, The Truth. And she said that on a phone call in 1996 with Monica Daneman, she directly asked if she had poured wine down Hendrix's throat herself. And Daneman's reply was, It was all untidy. He was messy. I thought it would help. Sharon Lawrence was convinced that Hendrix's death was suicide. Personally, I really don't think that. I think, if anything, it was accidental. You know, I'm not here to give my opinions. I'm here to provide you with all the information. Make your own judgment. Now, we also go to within hours of Jimi Hendrix's death, all his hotel rooms and the places that he would sleep occasionally in London, as well as New York, were all turned over. Clothes, instruments, some of his writings, his drugs, everything was gone. An investigation was not launched until 23 years later when all the evidence was already gone. And we had talked about that with Kathy Etchingham in part one. Then we move forward to about 2009. A book called Rock Roadie comes out. And this is written by James Wright, also known as Tappy Wright. And he says that Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey, in 1973, right before his death, drunkenly confessed to killing him by stuffing pills into his mouth and washing them down with several bottles of red wine because he feared Jimi Hendrix was going to dump him for a new manager and he was going to lose all his money. Tappy Wright says, 
Jeffrey told him that Hendrix had been worth more to him dead than alive because he had taken out that insurance policy on him as well worth $2 million and left himself as the beneficiary. Now, we already kind of talked about that a few minutes ago when it was actually Warner Brothers who had taken that um, insurance policy out. But James Tappy Wright, in his book, says, I can still hear that conversation. See the man I'd known for so much of my life, his pale face, hand clutching at his glass in sudden rage. I had to do it, Tappy. You understand, don't you? I had to do it. You know damn well what I'm talking about. I was in London the night of Jimmy's death, and together with some old friends. We went round to Monica's hotel room, got a handful of pills and stuffed them into his mouth, then poured a few bottles of red wine deep into his windpipe. I had to do it. Jimmy was worth much more to me dead than alive. That son of a bitch was going to leave me. If I lost him, I'd lose everything. Pretty fucking wild shit, right? Well, this also brings up the question of why did it take so long for James Tappy Wright to come forward with this information? And he simply says, I was scared. And you also have to remember that Tappy Wright never drank or took drugs, so his memory of the 60s was very sharp. And Tappy goes on to say, Mike Jeffrey was not a man you wanted to cross. I was scared of him. The day after he told me, I came in dead nervous, like, in case he'd had second thoughts. It was never mentioned again. Now, like I said, later, a little bit later on, I think it was a couple weeks after this, is when Mike Jeffrey died in that, in that plane crash. So, when Mike Jeffrey died, why didn't Tappy Wright come forward then, if he was so scared of him? Why didn't he come out with that information, alright? Why didn't he come out in 1993? When this new investigation headed by Kathy Etchingham started and everybody was reinvestigating his death, James Tappy Wright says, well, they never asked. The other men who helped Mike Jeffrey kill Hendricks, they would have still been alive. And I was worried that the fact that I hadn't come forward in the first place made me a, what do you call it, an accessory. In the end, it was Rod Weinberg who persuaded me I had a duty to come clean. So that's some pretty revealing information, all right? Now, like I said, James Tappy Wright was a roadie. He wrote a book, you know, it's basically about him being a roadie for all these bands back in the 60s and shit like that. So one of the guys who was still alive when this book came out was Bob Levine. He is one of the few key people that was still alive at the time and he was the u.s manager and he worked very closely with mike jeffrey and Jimi hendrix and at the same time he also had to take mike jeffrey to court for thirty thousand dollars that he had lent him to save him from a mafia enforcer because mike jeffrey had taken out a loan that he couldn't pay back so bob levine fronted him the money and uh, never paid him back, obviously, and he ended up having to take Mike Jeffrey to court for it. Now, Bob Levine supposedly had sent a letter to James Tappy Wright saying, I'm so glad you honored the truth instead of all that regurgitated shit that comes out. And just keeps getting more and more interesting. So in 2011, reportedly, in an interview with Bob Levine, Bob says, Jimi Hendrix was not murdered. Despite the allegations that have recently been made, I need to set the record straight once and for all. Jimmy died an accidental death, but he definitely wasn't murdered. Not by Michael Jeffrey, 
and certainly not by anybody connected to him. The whole thing is one giant lie. Tappy wrote that Jeffrey was afraid that Jimmy was going to leave him for a new manager. He also said that Jeffrey had taken out an insurance policy on Jimmy that was worth a couple million dollars and that he wanted to collect on it, all of which is ridiculous. I was Jimmy's U.S. manager, and Mike Jeffrey was Jimmy's U.K. manager. Mike also oversaw a lot in the U.S., and he was involved in other business enterprises. Michael wasn't always Jimmy's manager. Chas Chandler, who was in the Animals, was managing and producing Jimmy at first. The three of us, in fact, myself, Chas, and Michael Jeffrey, all saw Jimmy together in 1966 at the Café Wa in New York City. You could tell he was going to be a huge star even then. After a few years, Chaz and Michael had a split. They broke up Chandler Jeffrey, and it was decided that Mike was going to run the UK office and I'd look after things in the US. Tappy Wright worked in the office for Mike Jeffrey. He did a variety of things, among them acting as a roadie for Jimi Hendrix. He did some roadie work for Ike and Tina Turner too. Bob Levine goes on to say that he pretty much just made all this shit up to sell books. He says, I used to talk to Tappy every day. I've known him since the early 60s. He told me he was putting together a book about his years in the rock world. Everybody has a right to do a book if they can. But he told me, Bob, I need a hook for the book. I need a handle. He needed something that would be a grabber. Well, saying that Jimmy was murdered is a grabber. Saying that Jimmy was murdered by his manager is an even bigger grabber. But it's certainly not the truth. I told Tappy, what are you doing making up this story? So you want to sell books? Why do you have to print such lies? And he said to me, well, who's going to challenge me? Everybody's dead. Everybody's gone. Chas Chandler, Mike Jeffrey, Mitch Mitchell, Noel Redding, they're all gone. Nobody can challenge what I write. So that's some pretty revealing shit about the whole thing about James Tappy Wright, you know, talking about Mike Jeffrey's drunken confession and shit, right? <laughs> well, in 2016, about six months before Bob Levine died, in an interview on video, he actually did admit that there could have been some foul play in Jimmy's death. <laughs> so... I hope you guys understand why this episode took a few days longer than I wanted it to because there's a lot of different shit going on with the same people saying different things all the time. And it is oh, super frustrating. But anyway, Tappy Wright's claims that Jeffrey orchestrated Hendrix's murder was also refuted by Trixie Sullivan Delinick, which was Mike Jeffrey's personal assistant at the time. Delinick said that Wright was the biggest conniving idiot of all time and that he would do anything for publicity. And she wasn't the only person to say that. There were a lot of people that came out and was like, dude, James Wright is full of absolute shit. Like, you cannot believe what this dude says. And then there's Hilton Valentine from The Animals, the guitars for The Animals, and Kathy Etchingham who was Hendrix's former girlfriend, they also admitted that Wright's claims were untrue. Now, James Tappy Wright passed away from heart failure in 2015, so obviously he is not around or available for comment. So the next set of theories is going to be the accidental death, suicide. Um, they're kind of going to be intertwined because 
I don't know. There's just a lot of the same information for both of these, both of these theories. But uh, before we get to that, I do have to stop and play a few advertisements. So you can fast forward a couple minutes, meet me back here, or go grab yourself a drink. See you guys back here in a few. All right. So in 1969, on a trip to Morocco. Jimi Hendrix visited a clairvoyant, and he got a tarot reading, and he had the death card turned up. Now, Jimmy, from that point, took the prediction quite literally. He would tell friends, I'm going to die before I'm 30. So whether or not that had anything to do with his mindset going forward, uh, it's hard telling. You know, I really don't know. But uh, another interesting thing is that two days before his death, he ran into a journalist friend named Sharon Lawrence, who I, I had previously mentioned. And Jimmy was too intoxicated to play his guest spot, where he was supposed to join Eric Burden, who had a new band called War. He told her, I'm almost gone. Now, his final weeks are just pretty crazy and pretty sad. Arriving for a show in Gothenburg, Sweden, Hendrix was met by former student Ava Sundquist, who insisted he'd fathered her son James after a Stockholm show the previous year. And now this was Jimi Hendrix's second paternity claim in a short amount of time. The night show was a complete fucking mess. Jimi Hendrix was wasted, he forgot songs mid-solo, and he just started drifting into other songs. But part of that, I, you know, whether Hendrix was wasted, a lot of guitarists do that, though. I'll be perfectly honest with you. If you're, if you're going and playing a long set, you're going to blend those songs together. And if you're playing, you know, like mid-solo, depending on the set, depending on how that goes, you're going to switch in and out of other songs sometimes. I got to take their word for it because I was not there. But at the next gig in Denmark... He had to be helped on stage by his new fiance, who was not Monica Daneman. It was a Danish model and actress, Kirsten Neffer. He had been suffering from a fever, and he only played maybe about three songs. He really couldn't couldn't play anymore. He had this really bad fever, wasn't feeling good. And then his final show at the Open Air Love and Peace Festival on Fenmarn Island in Germany on September 6th. It was fucking horrible. A storm had stopped him from playing his scheduled spot the previous night, and when he finally made it on stage, he was booed. At the end of his set, the Hells Angels, who were running security at the time, they started burning and looting fucking everything. And then they went onto the stage and set it on fucking fire. They shot one of Jimi Hendrix's roadies in the leg. Like, all this crazy shit went down. So after this, Hendrix is like, man... What the fuck, dude? So he goes back to London, and he just canceled all of his remaining dates. When he got back to London, all the people around him um, basically just kind of dropped off. You know, all of his closest friends weren't there. The people who had kept him pretty grounded. He had all these hanger-on people who really didn't give a fuck about him, you know? And his fiance Kirsten Neffer, she had to be back to her film set, and um, one of his bassists, Billy Cox, was one of his like key people that kept this dude grounded. Well, Billy Cox had drank some punch that was spiked with bad LSD at the Gothenburg show. And after this, he started suffering from paranoid delusions. 
he was thinking that he was just going to be fucking poisoned all the time. Like, the dude was paranoid as fuck, having all these delusions. So he flew back to the United States just to, like, get his fucking mind right, get his shit together. And um, Philip Norman, like I said, he was the author of the Hendrix book, Wild Thing, The Short Spellbinding Life of Jimi Hendrix. I had mentioned him earlier. He straight up said, if Billy Cox had been around, it wouldn't have happened at all. Jimmy had exhausted himself. He had been completely worn out by this awful tour that he'd been on through Europe. He straight up said, he's like, dude, if Billy Cox would have been there, this never would have happened to Jimi Hendrix. Billy Cox looked out for Jimmy because, like I said, you know, it's no offense to Jimmy, and I don't mean to say naive in a bad way, but Jimi Hendrix was just a good-hearted person. He couldn't say no to people. So it was easy. People took advantage of this dude left and right. So when Hendrix was on his own in London... He all of his friends and, you know, all of his previous love affairs or ex-girlfriends, they when they saw him, like, in London after this Europe tour, you know, they straight up said, man, they're like, dude, he looks so thin, he looked tired, he just looked really, really fucking bad. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix is out shopping on King's Road, you know, he was watching some movies, and he made his very last appearance on stage with Eric Burden's war at a place called Ronnie Scott's. And um, still talking with people on how to get out of his contract with Mike Jeffrey, like talking about, you know, what he should be doing next, this, that, and the other. Um, just basically anything he could do to separate himself from Mike Jeffrey. Now, because Kirsten Neffer wasn't there, okay, his final three days were spent largely with Monica Daneman. And like I'd mentioned in part one, she was a 25 year old German ex ice skater. They had had some little flings here and there, you know, like in Dusseldorf and London the previous year. Now, Daneman would claim that the pair had fallen deeply in love and planned, you know, to get married. But um, Philip Norman actually says something that I fucking agree with. He said, she seemed to be an obsessive fan who could actually harm the object of their adoration. Her claim that she was engaged to him and was the love of his life seemed very questionable. And that was something I was trying to portray in part one. Like, she seems almost obsessed with this guy to the point that if I can't have you, nobody will type scenario. That's kind of what it seems like. And that's just speculation on my behalf. Jimi Hendrix had struggled with sleep for months prior to this. All right. I mean, sometimes days at a time he's awake, and he asked Daneman that night if she had any sedatives he could take. She offered him a strong German sleeping pill called Vesperex. She was taking these because she had an injury that basically killed her skating career, so that's why she's taking them. Now, it's still unknown how many tablets Jimi Hendrix took. It's believed to be between 8 and 10 of these tablets. Now, according to a friend of Hendrix's, a guy named uh, Buzzy Linhart, who was a folk singer, uh, the day before his death, Jimi Hendrix had complained of being awake for days, and a New York doctor had advised Hendrix to take three doses of his regular sleeping pill because Jimi had built up a tolerance to these pills. Three or four double doses of Vesperex is way fucking stronger than the stuff that Jimi Hendrix was already on. So this would have put him in danger because he was so physically exhausted and he was in a very weakened state. Now, when Monica Daneman, you know, 
all of her fucking stories. The one where she goes out for cigarettes and comes back and she noticed he had vomit around his mouth and she couldn't wake him up. When she went to call the doctor, she called her friend Alvenia Bridges first. She had spent the night with Eric Burden. All right. So Bridges said that Daneman was hysterical when she called, saying that Hendrix was unconscious and vomiting. Bridges advised Monica Daneman to turn him over to stop him from choking, but she failed to do so. Eric Burden's story would also change a little bit over time. He'd also claim that Daneman had gone out for cigarettes after calling Bridges and had to be convinced on a second phone call to call for an ambulance because she was worried about all the drug paraphernalia all over the room and was afraid that Jimmy would be angry to wake up feeling fine and be handcuffed to a hospital bed. Now, at some point, either before the ambulance arrived or before the police came to interview Daneman that afternoon, there was a cleanup that took place at the Samarkand involving Eric Burden and a lot of various roadies and certain helpers. There's a guy named Terry Slater. He was filmed by police burying drugs in a garden, which were missing when he returned for them the next day. And this is suggesting that this happened later in the day after police had designated the Samarkand a potential crime scene. But... According to Kathy Etchingham's book, Through Gypsy Eyes, Slater remembered seeing Hendrix on the bed looking knackered, which I'm sure is an English word for fucked up or something. And then Burden's claim that he'd arrived at the Samarkand while there was still morning dew on the cars led Philip Norman, the bio, one, of the, one of the authors, to believe that Burden and his associates cleaned the apartment before the ambulance was called, while Hendrix could have still been helped. He says, This was a very beautiful Indian summer, so that would have been really early in the morning. The ambulance wasn't called, as the log showed, until after 11 in the morning. There were these lost few hours between the time that people went to this bedsit in the basement of his hotel and the time he was taken in an ambulance to the hospital. Several hours passed when it seems quite clear he could have been resuscitated and saved. Instead, there were people there getting rid of drugs and panicking around him without doing anything to help him. Man, when I read that, that broke my fucking heart. He goes on to say, He was in a state of complete physical exhaustion at the time, and London was full of people who supposedly cared about him and had some sort of responsibility for him, and none of them seemed to be able to save him from this preventable tragic death. Now, the revised time of death is 3 to 4 a.m. This contradicts the gap in the official record, and so does the revelation that Hendrix drowned in red wine. Everybody knows that Hendrix choked to death. It was only recently that... Um, that the wine, not the Vesperex, was the primary catalyst of his death. In Tony Brown's book, he said that the evidence suggests that he was forced to drink a quantity of wine. The barbiturates seriously inhibited Jimmy's normal cough reflex. So, if he was unable to cough the wine back up, it went straight down into his lungs. It is quite possible that he thrashed about for some time, fighting unsuccessfully to gain his breath. Now, it's pretty doubtful that Hendrix would have continued to swallow this wine in massive volumes, 
if it was starting to fill up his lungs. Now, one explanation that explains the forensic evidence is that uh, Jimi Hendrix was restrained and wine was forced down his throat until his thrashings ceased, all of which must have taken place quickly before the alcohol had time to enter his bloodstream. The postmortem report states that the blood alcohol level was not excessive, about 20 milligrams over the legal drinking limit. Uh, he died before his stomach absorbed much of the wine, and Jimi Hendrix choked to death. That is much of the general understanding of his demise, and that's pretty much all that we fucking know. I know it kind of contradicts the whole accidental death theory towards the end, but I actually reached out to a couple people in the medical field to explain to me how somebody you know, who chokes on their own vomit could also have a partially collapsed lung because that was part of the autopsy that, that they noticed. And, uh, believe it or not, it is absolutely possible. It is absolutely possible. I don't know. I'll tell you what I think, I guess, after, after we go through this last theory here, it's, it's not really my favorite. It does have enough ground to be mentioned and it is pretty much political assassination theory. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from Who Killed Jimmy by John Holmstrom. He didn't die from a drug overdose. He was not an out-of-control dope fiend. Jimi Hendrix was not a junkie. And anyone who would use his death as a warning to stay away from drugs should warn people against the other things that killed Jimmy. The stresses of dealing with the music industry, the craziness of being on the road, and especially the dangers of involving oneself in a radical or even unpopular political movement. Now, I'm going to tell you about COINTELPRO. <laughs> COINTELPRO is some fucked up government shit that, I mean, I'm not surprised when I read, I'm so fucking anti-government, like, I'm not surprised to read this shit at this point. COINTELPRO was um, counterintelligence program, and it was part of Operation Chaos. For those of you who want to read further into Operation Chaos, please go right ahead. Basically, it was out to prevent communism for the most part, okay? But it was also intertwined with the Black Panther Party and certain musicians who were outspoken against war. All right, so... It was basically out to obliterate its opposition and ruin the reputations of people involved in the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and the rock revolution. Whenever Jimi Hendrix's death is blamed on drugs, it accomplishes the goals of the FBI's program. It not only slanders Jimi's personal and professional reputation, but the entire rock revolution that came from the 60s totally just looks at, makes it look super bad. Now, according to Philip Norman, there were credible reasons for thinking that he might have been murdered by the American government as a threat at the time of extreme paranoia when they had these contingency plans for rounding up people they thought were threats and putting them in camps in the early 70s. And then Jimmy had started to affiliate himself with the Black Panther Party, and that would freak out the government or the CIA and the FBI because he had such influence over white audiences. Now, jumping on, just going into this real quick, that's kind of a, a narrow spectrum by Philip Norman, and I'm not bashing him, obviously, but Project Chaos... 
was more than just that. COINTELPRO was... It wasn't just about black entertainers. It was also about white ones. It was basically anybody who challenged the status quo at the time who was super anti-government. It's it's kind of fucked up, man, because, I mean, Janis Joplin was on this list. Jim Morrison was on this list. You had actors on this list. And here's how we found out about this. In 1979, college students at the campus newspaper of Santa Barbara University filed for release of FBI files on Jimi Hendrix. Six heavily redacted pages were released to the student reporters. And obviously, you know, a lot of this shit was redacted, so they appealed it, right? So they appealed, they got seven more pages, and the files revealed that Jimi Hendrix, along with other very prominent musicians in the middle-late 60s, had been placed on a federal security index, which was a list of people to be rounded up and placed in detainment camps in the event of a national emergency. Now, what would constitute this emergency? I have no fucking idea. But there's an author named Alex Constantine, and he's the main proprietor for this this theory. Um, He links the FBI, the CIA, and other intelligence agencies, and he says, in regards to the um, FBI files on Hendricks, students in Santa Barbara sued and laid hands on some of them. The FBI held most of them back. There is a common misperception concerning COINTELPRO. It was part of Operation Chaos, which was an immense interagency attempt to counter the anti-war movement. Operation Chaos was international, so it was this operation that interfered with the Panther concert because uh, Jimmy was supposed to play like a like a benefit concert for uh, the Black Panthers, and the FBI and police hit squads killed 28 Black Panthers. Alex Constantine goes so far as to say that Tupac Shakur was actually 29 on there because several of Tupac's extended family were very significant members of the Black Panther Party. And uh, Hendrix had actually donated money to the unfairly imprisoned New York City Panther 21, which included Tupac Shakur's mother, Efeni. Pretty wild shit, right? (laughs) Like fucking government programs dude it's just there's just so much shit going on with this there's also several other accounts and like i said i'll I'll state alex constantine's book here at the end because for those of you who want to dive into that you know part of it is because like Jimi hendrix he got affiliated with the black panthers now i can't say you know, what's true and what's not, okay, because uh, I wasn't fucking there, I didn't know the dude, all I know is this guy is one of my fucking heroes, because he's literally about peace and love, and he's a musical genius, and he had soul, man, but a lot of his biographers and friends that knew him said that the Panthers actually just started showing up at his concerts, and basically making him feel guilty for being apolitical, Um, because Jimmy was very middle of the road, he believed in people communicating with each other 
more than he did picking a side on politics. Like, he was not a very political person until the end. And uh, a couple of his, like I said, a couple of his biographers had mentioned that the Black Panthers started showing up as parties, making him feel guilty, basically, you know, saying, hey, man, you have this huge platform, like, help, help us the fuck out. And because of his personality of being the guy that really can't say no, which would attribute to, you know, his touring schedule and shit like that too. Like he, the guy didn't say no, you know, that's how he got kind of entwined in that. But Jimi Hendrix also gave some interviews where he's talking about fucking the black Panthers going to Washington DC and shooting the place up and shit. And that was in like a teen magazine, probably not the best thing to say, but all that aside, like, you know, Jimi Hendrix had always presented himself as very apolitical, and even in his very last interview a week before he died, they bring it up. You can find it easily on YouTube. The whole interview is there. It's like 35 minutes, and I mean, it's it's one of the reasons I love the guy, because he's just so fucking chill, man, and just super cool, but they ask him about his political affiliations, and he straight up says, he's like, listen, man, if we could all just communicate with each other it's about us. It's not about them. You know, it's not about them being, you know, the politicians. It's not about this side or that side. He's like, it's all about us communicating with each other and being on the same page. He's like, that's what they're trying to prevent all the time. They're always trying to divide us. And this motherfucker's saying this shit back in like 69 and 70. And like I said, this interview was a week before he died. It's on YouTube. Just type it in. Jimi Hendrix last interview. It's only audio. Only the audio is available. There's no video for it. Amazing interview. So like I said, I don't know Jimi Hendrix. I didn't know Jimi Hendrix. I know nobody who knew Jimi Hendrix. So I can't say for certain where his mindset was at. But even up until literally a week before he died, you can see where he stood on issues like that. So he was willing to help people out, but I don't think he was as political as a lot of people make him out to be, unfortunately. And yeah, he had affiliated himself with some groups. He had affiliated himself with all kinds of fucking people. I don't know, man. It's just to think that this whole, you know, government conspiracy assassination plot, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're going to do that and Operation Chaos was a, a worldwide thing, it wasn't just America, dude. It was, it's scary as shit when you get into it. It was literally like the FBI, the CIA, MI6, all these fucking top government agencies all working together to basically say, okay, well, if there's a national emergency, which you could fucking say anything is a national emergency, then we have the power, we have a list of fucking people that we're just going to throw in these fucking detainment camps until the national emergency is over. That is fucking terrifying, you know what I'm saying? So, Jimi Hendrix was on this list, Janis Joplin was on that list at a certain point, Jim Morrison was on that list a lot of top performers and it wasn't just like left, you know, left-leaning radicals. It was fucking all kinds of different people. It's just crazy crazy shit, man. And if you're going to like do this whole fucking world orchestrated shit and then you have Mike Jeffrey as Jimi Hendrix's manager and one of the people closest to him who knows like pretty much his every fucking movement. I can kind of see that, how that would work out and how you would put those pieces together. But there's so many accounts of what happened. We don't know what fucking happened to Jimi Hendrix, man. I'll be perfectly honest. Like the political assassination theory for me 
is probably the least plausible. And I'm sure there's people out there who who disagree with me, and that's totally fine. That's absolutely understandable. But you also have theories of him fucking shooting up like the super powerful heroine at a friend's house and then was taken to Monica Daneman's place, which isn't out of the realm of possibility because the dude was found on top of the bed covers, fully clothed. You also have a fucking theory that he was flown to Hollywood on a private jet, murdered, and then flown back to London and placed in Daneman's fucking apartment. You know, my personal personal opinion, I don't do this too often on on episodes, and I legit gave you guys the information that, that you, you know, need to base your own theories. Honestly, I, I would say I lean more towards accidental. I mean, I can't explain the red wine, though. I truly fucking can't. That's just, see, even I'm in, I, even I'm on the fence about it, but Monica Daneman's story is changing so many fucking times. She ends up dead before she's supposed to tell the truth. Mike Jeffrey dies after supposedly confessing to James fucking Tappy Wright. All these supposed fucking governments working together to fucking neutralize Jimi Hendrix. It's like Jimi Hendrix was legitimately on his last fucking leg towards the end of his life. Like, he was exhausted. He was depressed. He had all these changing experiences with music. You know, he had that fucking heroin bust. Like, just so you know, too, it wasn't his affiliation with the Black Panther Party that got him put on that fucking list. It was actually when he got busted for heroin on the border on the border of Toronto. That's when he went on the FBI's list. So, I mean, he was on there because of that. And then they just started digging. And by the way, you can actually, if you're in the Facebook group, I just posted there, you can find the 34 pages of, of Jimi Hendrix's FBI files. And to be honest, the thing about it is, if Jimi Hendrix was killed by the government, so all powerful because he could bring all these different groups of people together, uh, which he could, which he could. Uh, same thing with Janis Joplin. Same thing with uh, Jim Morrison, dude. Like, they all could. They were very influential. But Jimi Hendrix's FBI file is legitimately only 34 pages. And I know some of you are like, dude, that's a lot. And in all actuality, it's not. It's actually very tame <laughs> for some of the other people. I mean, Janis Joplin had... I can't remember how many pages hers was, but it was way fucking more than Jimi Hendrix. Same thing with Jim Morrison. And I think Jim Morrison has a better chance of being murdered by government officials than Jimi Hendrix did. Because Jim Morrison's fucking dad was legitimately an admiral in the fucking Navy. Like a high-ranking military official. You know what I'm saying? And then his son is Jim Morrison. But anyway, like I said, I'm still on the fence about this. I know I just said my opinion was accidental, but I contradicted myself with the with the red wine thing. <laughs> so I, I honestly don't know. Um, all I know is that we lost a fucking legend way too early. I think his manager did not help anything, really. I think he worked him to death, man. He saw him as, as just a, a piece of money, a product. You know, that he's just trying to sell over and over and, you know, it it, it sucks. And if, if you want to, I actually have a, um, I'm going to play a clip from an interview. And this interview is from uh, Jimi Hendrix and the band arriving in Dallas on 4-20-1969. And uh, it's a very cool interview and it kind of gives you an idea of Hendrix's mindset. Again, like 
you can have all these people tell you shit about how Jimi Hendrix felt or about what he thought about this, that, and the other, and, you know, whatever else. But if you actually sit down and listen to interviews with him and listen to him talk, you get a, you get a way better idea of where he's coming from, and it's one of the reasons I absolutely love him. He introduced me to Steve. When I heard Red House and Hey Joe, I was instantly a blues man. And that introduced me to, you know, Johnny Lee Hooker and, you know, Muddy Waters and then Stevie Ray and all these other musicians. Jimi Hendrix is just, he opened up all these doors musically for me personally. And that's, and just his personality and his mindset is um, 10,000 reasons why I love this fucking guy. But, um, but we lost a legend way too early. So in this interview, basically, he's getting off this plane. Um, he's just arriving in Dallas. He's being questioned about how he can write such meaningful lyrics and still be like a high school dropout. <laughs> you know, and it, it's kind of awkward at first. And like Jimi Hendrix, he he didn't fucking care. He's like, listen, man, you know. Just because I dropped out of high school doesn't mean I don't know how to write or don't know how to write what I feel. It's only a few minutes long. After that, we're going to cut to a commercial break. And then I'm going to play for you a promo from Larry Bentley and his new podcast. And then we're going to read some reviews. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I, I hope you were happy with the, um, with the reason it was... <laughs> like almost a week late, but there was a lot of shit going on here. There's a lot of stuff, man. So, and, uh, if you guys want to follow me on social media, email me, it's justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram, mysterious underscore podcast. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at podcast MC and yeah. Anyway, till next time, see you folks on the flip side. Consider yourself a dropout from society? Not necessarily, no. Because we're making our own society, if you give us a chance. They might, oh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> no, I love that dropout, man. I'm still living and breathing just like you. We just look a little different, that's all. We just have different ways of expressing ourselves, which should be the free point of view anyway, you know. Your lyrics seem to have quite a bit of sophistication for what people in, in America consider a high school dropout should be writing. Yeah, well, so we're, we're for anybody that's going to uh, get themselves together, you know. We're not for the whole lot of people sitting around in a big drug den, sitting around complaining. If they're sitting around and still trying to get themselves together some kind of way, you know, regardless if it's a dropout of society or whatever it might be, or if it's the people in society, let like to get anybody's mind together, because the idea now is to communicate, not, not to uh, knock one another, you know, rebel and all this. Well, quite naturally, you have to start somewhere, so you go into the rebellions. The idea is to communicate. And for everybody to be respected, regardless of what group scene you might be in, you know. Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty to deep forests and cabins in the wood or maybe even trailer parks meth heads extreme prejudice and xenophobia the fact that 
one word can bring up such a huge response as an ode to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains, though the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable. History as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told, and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. Join me in my new podcast called Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Come with me on a fantastic journey through these mountains where we will explore Appalachian life, mysteries, legends, and history such as the true story of the wreck of old 97, or the first recorded serial killers in America, Big and Little Harp, just to name a couple of episodes. That's Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, available right now on your favorite podcast media. (laughs) I can guarantee it's not going to be anything like you think. Thank you. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Now we're going to read some of these, uh, (laughs) some of my sources for this information. And then I'm going to read some reviews. So, first one being an article in The Independent, authored by Sadie Gray, 2011. Then we have Jimi Hendrix, A Perfect Murder, written by Nathia Kay in 2020. We have a book called American Desperado, published in 2011 by Evan Wright and John Roberts. An article written by Ben Child in 2009. We have an article called The Rap by David Comfort in 2010. We also have Ready Steady Gone, Roger Smith, and that was a big four-part series on Jimi Hendrix's death, which is an amazing source of information. So, you know, if you do want to look into that, just go to readysteadygone.com. Roger Smith, he wrote a four-part series on it. And we have TheVelvetRocket.com, written by Justin, 2010. Uh, We have MusicRadar.com, an article written in May 2011 by Joe Basso. We have a 2016 interview that was with Bob Levine on YouTube from Exiles 800. We have another article from The Independent, 2020, by Mark Beaumont. We have a book called The Covert War on Rock by Alex Constantine, published in 2000, specifically Chapter 7. And then we have a book called Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky by David Henderson. So all those are sources for information if you want to do some further reading and further research. Great sources of information again. So, All right, first off, we got from the U.S. of A. 
Mel477SLP, five stars, love this podcast. Justin is an exceptional storyteller in terms of his content, his voice, his style, interest in his material, and compassion for the people affected. Thanks for making an awesome podcast that entertains while shedding light on a lot of things we wouldn't ordinarily know about. Uh, Thank you very much. I, I take that as a huge compliment. I like to cover cases that are not overly done. And, um, when I do cover, you know, true crime cases, I always take them seriously. I'm not out here fucking joking around or, or whatever. So yeah, obviously I have lots of different content. So, you know, I like to have my fun on certain episodes. Usually, usually ones I know people ain't going to be affected by and stuff like that, like paranormal episodes and everything like that. So I do appreciate that. Next one is five stars. Tiger Panzer 2000. Awesomely awesome podcast. Justin has a great passion for the victims of the true crimes that he covers, well-researched, and his delivery is unpretentious. It is as if you were listening to an old friend. Again, that is a huge compliment for me. Yeah, I'm not very pretentious at all. My job is to provide you with all the facts and information that I can that I can find, and you guys come to your own conclusions and figure it out. I'm not out here thinking I'm fucking better than anybody else. I'm not on a fucking soapbox or a pedestal or anything like that, you know, I'm just just a podcaster with a blue-collar job, <laughs> you know, so that's how it is, I suppose, but thank you, I, I do appreciate that Tiger Panzer 2000. Next one, we got five stars, reviewing for USA, always deliver. I've listened to these podcasts while working around the house so much that I think of Justin actually helping me, LOL. I've noticed that I'm more productive when I listen. I could actually give him credit for helping. (laughs) Well, fucking A. You know, I'm happy to help when I can, I suppose. And, uh, you know, on that note, I hope you enjoyed the the Jimi Hendrix series. You know, I got some some other series coming here in the near future. And that would include, actually... um, yeah, me and me and the boys from Dark Windows Podcast have actually decided to do an episode on the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, for those of you who are familiar with, you know, my, my, my paranormal stuff. Now, I'm not a skeptic by any means, as we all know. Uh, I'm a skeptic with an open mind. I've been through paranormal experiences myself. I grew up in a fucking house where shit happened. So I'm not a, a you know, a non-believer. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit around and be scared of shit that other people says and be freaked out. Ed and Lorraine Warren are probably going to get ripped to shreds here. And like I said, it's going to be, it's going to be an episode. It's going to be a collaboration with Dark Windows Podcast. The one catch is that it will not be on the Mysterious Circumstances feed. It will only be able to be found on Dark Windows Podcast. And trust me, I'll let you guys know when that episode drops. It's going to be at least a one-part, if not a two-part episode, because we decided we're going to take two cases that they covered, that they wrote books about, that there's movies about, and we're going to fucking nitpick them, and we're going to tell you what's bullshit and what's not, and it's no offense against the Warrens, But a lot of this shit out here is sensationalized, and people put a lot of fucking stock in it, and it's just a bunch of horse shit, man. Listen, we all love to make money, but you shouldn't have to lie and sensationalize shit to fucking do it. So, that's basically my whole stance on it. 
So yeah, here in uh, in July, I believe we're we settled on mid July as recording date. So yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing that shit. So I do appreciate that. But yeah, I got some other other series coming up on on MC as well. So I'm glad I can help you clean up around the house. You know, maybe someday you can come help me clean up around the house too. I need some dishes done. No, <laughs> no, I'm just fucking with you. But no, thank you very much for taking the time to leave the review. I do appreciate that um, immensely. All right, next one we got uh, five stars from Garfman72. If you're offended by foul language, then this show isn't for you. You've been warned. This is a great show. You don't get all the same old stories that have been done to death by other podcasts. The stories are well-researched, and Justin doesn't sound like he's reading from a script. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, I'm not reading from a script actually unless I'm quoting somebody like directly uh yeah I use bullet points and a lot of memory from shit that I read and watch and just kind of go from there so um Garfman 72 I fucking appreciate it man this one is from five stars Kristen Stolnicker she's actually in the Facebook group she's quite active in the Facebook group actually Kristen so I appreciate you for for being in there uh, it says, love it, and it says, just started listening, and I've already listened to four episodes today. Love the content, the laid-back feel of the whole podcast. Subscribed, and will definitely continue listening. Well, judging by your activity in the Facebook group, you kind of love what we're all about. You know, I'm glad that you enjoy the podcast, and, you know, I'll be the first to admit some are better than others. You know, I can't say again how much I appreciate the fact you guys realize, you know, I don't cover cases that are overly done. It's just, uh, it's really fucking redundant. And like, don't get me wrong, those cases still need attention. I get that. But at the same time, there's cases that have gotten zero fucking attention that people just ignore because they're like, well, nobody's going to download that episode because they've never heard of that name before. You know, it's something you see with a lot of the more popular podcasts now, and it's it's kind of unfortunate. So, it is what it is, you know. But, uh, Kristen, thank you very much, and I hope you're enjoying your time in the group, and please stay active in there. What do we got here? Steffi G2020. Glad I found it. I stumbled across your podcast on Instagram and decided it looked interesting. It's definitely that and more. Great job. Steffi G, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I am on Instagram, at Mysterious underscore podcast, if you want to follow. Sometimes I post memes, sometimes I post articles, you know, sometimes I post about other random cases and shit, and that's how it is, so good deal. Um, thank you, Steffi G. Next one, we got uh, four stars, Janie Sia, or yeah. Janie Sia, I hope I pronounced that right. Your guys' usernames throw me off sometimes. No offense. Uh, we got Night Porter. Uh, it is such a great time to get ready for bed and get ready to turn my podcasts on. I don't go to sleep without you ever. Sometimes I listen on certain podcasts. <laughs> sometimes I listen to certain podcasts more than once. For some, more than that. But listening to your voice every night helps me calm down, relax, and get ready for my night. Couldn't do without you. That, when you have your conspiracy episodes, I'd like to see more of those, but you're an A+. Well, thank you very much, yeah. Um, there's very few conspiracy-type cases that I feel are 
you know, very credible to report on. Uh, I think Jimi Hendrix's is one, and I, I might be a little biased because he's like a personal hero of mine for his music, and he's the reason I started playing guitar when I was a kid, so uh, might be a little bit biased there, but uh, yeah, I have to find like some actual good hardcore info and substantial, some kind of credibility in order to report on some kind of the conspiracy type shit. And don't get me wrong, I got like a big, huge JFK episode coming up. It'll it, it'll be at least three parts, if not four. So yeah, I got some good stuff coming up for you. Next up, we got KLS85, five stars, so good. Found him out via TikTok, and so happy I did. He is so thorough and has a great smooth voice. I enjoy just having this play on my drive to work an hour each way and makes the drive so much better. It's not like the others that I listen to with a lot of banter and politics in the True Crime Podcast, which is great sometimes, but it's like a breath of fresh air. Perfect when you just want to get to the story and know about the story. You can tell he really cares about the stories he is telling. Give it a try, and I bet you will love it too. And thank you very much. That is awesome. Yeah, I am on TikTok, at uh, burnitall13. Not hard to find. Uh, it's the same as my in, my personal Instagram. So, yeah, I TikTok is like 50-50. It's half fun for me, half serious try to raise awareness, but I also try to have a little bit of fun on there, so, but, um, next one, we got UK, and we got, uh, five stars from Caravaggio, 65, I hope I pronounced that right, if I didn't, I apologize, uh, says, excellent and informative, currently working my way through the Jesse James series, Really enjoying the shows, good research, and lots of information that's new to me. I've read a great deal about the history of the American West. Podcasts like this certainly make history more accessible for us ordinary folks. Dude, that is a great compliment. Um, the Jesse James series, God, man, did that a couple years ago, like two and a half years ago or something like that. Four-part series. Uh, Jesse James was a very interesting character and. The American Wild West is is very interesting, and if you're if you're getting into it, you obviously realize that it's a lot of different characters with a lot of context, and it's just very interesting where everybody came from and where they went and how they became who they became. So that is a huge compliment. Thank you very very much. I do appreciate that. Uh, next one is five stars. Boy one boo. Super intrigue. Justin has developed an easy listening style with solid research backing his stories. A great listen. He always brings credible tales to the table. Thank you very much. I always try to uh, to bring the credible shit. That's why I'm so picky about some of the episodes I do because some of them you, you look at them and you know it's like, listen, man, this is kind of horse shit. Some of them I look at them and they're kind of horse shit and people are like all about them and it's like, okay. Obviously, you read the fucking headline, or you read a fucking so-and-so article on some haunted website, or whatever the case is, and it's like, I'm gonna fucking break this down for you. But no, thank you very much for, for taking the time to leave that. I love getting reviews from, from the UK listeners. We got five stars, and this is from Australia. We have five stars. Aussie Chick 94 says just awesome. 
My partners listened to you for years, and this year I started from the start in January and have finally caught up. Your voice is so calming and and just awesome to listen to. Can't wait to listen to more. Thank you, Aussie Chick 94. You're fucking awesome. And if you started from the very beginning, fuck, man. I I applaud you for sticking with it <laughs> because oh man, them older episodes are fucking rough, dude. I had no idea how to edit. I had a fucking $8 shitty microphone. It was just fucking bad. I mean, the stories are still good. The information is still plentiful, but the production quality is just total horseshit. So thank you for sticking around. I do appreciate that. Thank you. All right, next we got Canada. We got five stars. Where is the movie? Awesome show. I've been listening to true crime podcasts for a couple of years now, and I have to say that yours is my favorite. I love how you mix it up with history, paranormal, missing persons, and true crime. Thanks, man. Keep up the great job. You know what? Again, you know, that is a huge compliment for me because I have a lot of different interests, I I appreciate the fact that you appreciate that, if that makes sense. I'm sure it does. You know, I just have so many fucking interests that I can't just stay in a corner with one genre. It's fucking impossible for me. And I'm sorry if you can hear me itching right now. I'm fucking been sunburnt for a couple days and now it's starting to dry out. Now I'm all itchy. But no, where is the movie? Thank you very much. And like I said, I do. I take that as a huge compliment. So thank you. And listen, we both know I'm not your favorite. I'll take your top 50. That's I'm happy with that. All right. So thank you. All right. Next one we got from Canada. Five stars. Melanie Mack says, yay. Loving this new to me podcast. Am about halfway through the past episodes. Was told about you through the haunts episode. Keep doing what you do. I'm a fan. Oh, shit. Well, thank you very much. Um, Love you, Melanie Mac. You're fucking awesome. Thank you for leaving this review. I greatly appreciate it. All right, this next one. Damn it. It's five stars, but it's Y-O-Y-W-I-E-U-I-S. Yoyas. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, it says, it says amazing. Hey, Justin, I think your podcast is amazing. I do enjoy the juxtaposition of your cool vocal effect, um, with especially the mafia gangster podcasts. Um, I think you're very insightful. Wishing you all the best from Toronto, Canada. Keep up the great work. Well, obviously I love Toronto, Canada because I have some friends there and, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what, uh, vocal effect you're talking about on my mafia gangster episodes but fuck it man i'll take it thank you very much i greatly appreciate it and that is all that we have for the time being i don't know of any other countries that have sent me any reviews and if i missed some i do apologize i think i had some sent to me via text message Um, actually I had one posted in the group that I'm going to have to find. I apologize. And I'm sure he knows who I'm talking about because he posted that he couldn't do, uh, reviews on iTunes. So he just posted it in the group and I was like, I'll fucking read it all the same, dude. Like 
I still appreciate it, even though it's not on fucking iTunes. I'm going to actually have to look that one up and come back around and, and read it on the next episode. So I do apologize, man. I'm not ignoring you. Uh, I hope everybody has enjoyed the Jimi Hendrix series. I hope everybody is having a great summer. I love all you motherfuckers, and take care, and I imagine I will uh, see you folks on the flip side.